and welcome aboard This Island Nation, the Maritime Programme. Justin Ma here with the programme about Ireland's maritime culture, history, tradition and development. On this edition, the relatives of those who were killed in the worst maritime disaster in Irish history, the Betelgeuse oil tanker explosion at Whiddy Island in Bantry Bay, take legal action against the state. We reached out to the government and asked them, first of all, to show some compassion to the families of the Whiddy Island disaster and assist with commemorations. The leaders of the state failed to do that, and we followed up with correspondents asking to uh, meet them, and we, uh, given the fact that they have uh, failed to address current regulatory issues and brushed the fallout from Whiddy Island uh, under the carpet and did nothing following the tribunal report, there comes a point where enough is enough. And off the coast of West Cork, we hear about the research into the feeding grounds of top marine predators. Our objective on this crew is to focus on the 100 metre contour and look at it at its importance for top predators. So things like whales and dolphins, seabirds, uh, basking sharks and other charismatic marine megafauna. The idea is to evaluate the importance of this feature, the 100 metre contour for marine species. This Island Nation is Ireland's maritime radio programme, coming to you from the studios of CRY 104FM in Yall on the East Cork coastline and bringing together through the community radio network the maritime community around Ireland. At the start of this year, we reported from the Abbey Cemetery at the edge of Bantry in West Cork on the shoreline overlooking Whiddy Island for the 40th commemoration of the Betelgeuse disaster. At the commemoration, the following letter from Jeanette Raval, whose husband Marcel was killed when the Betelgeuse exploded, was read by former French consul in Cork, François Letellier. Each time I come back to Bantry, I feel angry. As far as I'm concerned, the lack of a rescue is responsible for the death of 50 people. How can we accept such a disaster 200 meters from the shoreline? No survivor no rescue. Nobody was there to answer the distress call, for God's sake, come and get us. There were too many operational malfunctions and a lack of safety at the terminal. Nothing worked. It was the 25th accident in nine years. I can well imagine what our loved one felt, knowing that the tanker was a bomb and being helpless so close to the shore as they were facing death, fully aware of what was happening. My husband was the third body found on the morning of the 8th. His body was totally intact. He died of hypothermia. Had he died at sea, my reaction would have been so much different. The families of the 50 people, 43 French, 7 Irish and 1 English, who died when the tank of Betelgeuse exploded at the Whiddy Island oil terminal in Bantry Bay on the 8th of January 1979, have decided to take legal action against the state. The French-Irish Association of Relatives and Friends of the Betelgeuse claimed that the deaths of their relatives were unlawful under Irish law and are making an application to the High Court for the state to rectify their death certificates, pursuant to the right-to-life provisions of Article 2 of the European Convention of Human Rights. 
They want a reconvening of the coroner's court, with the coroner to be directed to find the deaths unlawful and a state apology for failure to ensure safe operations at the oil terminal. Maritime lawyer Michael Kingston is vice president of the Relatives Association. His father Tim was one of those killed in the Betelgeuse tragedy. He told Tom McSweeney why the relatives had decided to take this action. Well, yes, Tom, uh, we reached out to the government and asked them, first of all, to show some compassion to the families of the Whidbey Island disaster and assist with commemorations. The leaders of the state failed to do that, and we followed up with correspondence asking to uh, meet them. And we, uh, given the fact that they have uh, failed to address current regulatory issues and brushed the fallout from Whidbey Island uh, under the carpet and did nothing following the tribunal report, there comes a point where enough is enough. And you're looking at basically one of the main demands is for the, the death certificates to be, be changed uh, under, the, under legislation, you say, that they should be reassigned effectively. Well, there is a fundamental right for all European citizens, and that's the right to life under Article 2 of the European Convention on Human Rights incorporated um, into Irish law. And there's clear um, precedent for uh, a very similar uh, tragedy for the death certificates to be changed from the immediate physical cause of death um, to unlawful death. And that's the Hillsborough tragedy in the United Kingdom, where... Um, the facts are quite analogous with what happened on Whidbey Island in terms of when people could have been revived or how long they waited for for uh, uh, rescue services and the families when the British government didn't do anything about it applied under Article 2 and a new coroner's inquiry was uh, convened and the death certificates were changed to unlawful death. And you're also looking for an apology on behalf of the families, the relatives, all of those involved. And I noted even the people of Bantry, and I was down there yesterday just recalling how much it has changed, what it was like on the on the night of, the day of, and there was a real fear, a palpable fear in the town then. Well, obviously I was very young, but I'm, I... The, the residue of that palpable fear um, is something that we've had to live with, and the Whitty Island disaster is something that never concluded properly. It wasn't just the families who were involved, the workers on the night were left in perilous danger due to the safety failings. The rescue services were unnecessarily called out because of the removal of all the safety systems and downgrading of the, the fire systems. And basically what effectively happened was we had a tribunal that came to its conclusions and then nothing happened. What should have happened immediately after the tribunal is that the government should have put its hands up and said we didn't enforce safety regulation and they should have issued a full and heartfelt and honest apology to the families, the workers, the rescue services and the community of Bantry and County Cork. And they still haven't, so you're going to the High Court now to seek all of these changes? Well, it's a situation that we didn't want to have to be in. We uh, wrote to the government and told them very clearly that we could deal with this in an enormously positive way and sit down and make sure that the regulatory failings, both domestic and their failure to implement international regulation, which caused the ultimate explosion on the on the tanker, and that we we wanted them to get on top of current failings in relation to ratifying international regulation, and show as a new generation of younger politicians that weren't involved in the t at the time that they're responsible and that they care. They've ignored our correspondence, so we have clear rights, and we will now 
use the legal process to make them do that. That's going to be costly, obviously, Michael. Nothing comes for free in, in, in this world, and yes, it's going to be costly. Um, we've launched a GoFundMe um, page, and we believe that these issues are so fundamental to Irish society, the establishment of our fundamental rights under European law, the protection of our workers from abuse, and the implementation of current um, regulation, which is left on government shelves gathering dust, and we believe that there will be strong support for this um, action and that the people of Ireland will assist. Michael Kingston, Vice President of the French Irish Association of Relatives and Friends of the Betelgeuse. Also in dealing with maritime accidents and rescue, the Minister for Transport, Tourism and Sport, Shane Ross, has introduced a new national search and rescue plan, which he says will make the rescue service better and safer for staff and volunteers. This follows reports into the Black Sod helicopter crash when four Coast Guard crew died and the Kilkeek rigid inflatable capsize when volunteer crew member Katrina Lucas was killed. Minister Ross said that lessons from those tragedies must be learned by everyone concerned, and that there will in future be a robust governance and oversight regime for search and rescue operations. The Marine Casualties Investigation Board report into the Kilkeek tragedy is revealed in full in the August edition of the Marine Times. It found that the Coast Guard did not have an effective safety management system. The Coast Guard has rejected the findings. John Leach, Chief Executive of Water Safety Ireland, was in the Naval Service for 21 years. He commanded naval vessels and was in charge of the Naval Diving Section. He examines the development of Irish search and rescue services. In my previous career as a naval officer with our Navy based in Hull Bowl in County Cork, on our routine patrols we were regularly tasked by the Irish Marine Emergency Services on search and rescue operations, normally as the unseen commander, and very often deploying the ship's boats to search and rescue for casualties. This was back in the late 70s, 80s and early 90s. On almost every patrol, we found ourselves involved in search and rescue operations. As a nation, we relied heavily on our neighbours' Royal Air Force and Royal Navy search and rescue helicopters to save the lives of mariners in our waters. Our own Air Corps Alouette single-engined helicopters did some sterling work rescuing mariners in distress during these years until they were equipped with the twin-engined Dauphin helicopters in the mid-1980s. From a search-and-rescue point of view, Ireland was in a bad state of affairs, and previous to that we were even worse. On the 12th February 1988, John Oglesby lost his leg on a trawler off the northwest coast and slowly bled to death for the want of a search-and-rescue helicopter to rescue him to a hospital. The people of the West Coast had had enough and campaigned for change under the banner of the West Coast Search and Rescue Action Committee, who did a brilliant job and, as a result of their efforts, Garda Commissioner Eamon Doherty, affectionately known as DOC, was appointed by government to lead our review group on air sea rescue in Ireland, which had been set up by Minister Wilson. The question of reviews, committees and reports, as we all know, is will anything actually be done? or will it just sit there on a departmental shelf gathering dust? Although we were an island nation, at that time our politicians lacked the awareness of it and the value that it brought to our economy and society, and more importantly, the potential it had for us. The report did fundamentally change search and rescue forever in Ireland, 
The report led to the creation of the Modern Coast Guard, formerly the IMES. It led to the acquisition of modern large helicopters that can reach out into the dark Atlantic on the stormiest of nights to save lives. It led to many more lifeboat stations being established around our coastline and there were many more changes. In fact, 54 recommendations in total were made to improve our search and rescue operational readiness. There have been a number of reviews since then, but none had such an impact as the Doherty report. We now enjoy four dedicated, contracted search and rescue helicopters and thousands of staff and volunteers in the Coast Guard and Royal National Lifeboat Institute, whilst the Community Rescue Boats Ireland are entirely voluntary. We also have a world-class Coast Guard with helicopters, lifeboats and, of course, the backup from the Navy and Air Corps as necessary, as well as a fleet of fishing vessels who have always responded as vessels of opportunity to search and rescue operations and also search and recovery operations around our island. In June this year, as a result of Storm Miguel, Three professional lifeboat crews from the French Lifeboat Service lost their lives when attempting to save the lives of fishermen. Katrina Lucas and these men paid the ultimate price in life-saving, which we all trained to avoid. The current search and rescue plan on the Coast Guard in relation to the tragic loss of Katrina whilst engaged in a search and recovery operation in Kilkee is welcomed. It may be of interest to you that this lifeboat service was formerly a CRBI unit and it operated successfully for over two decades under the local management of Manuel de Lucia. In fact, the early successes of the Kilkee CRBI and other such CRBI stations around the country in the early 80s brought about a statutory instrument for the exemption of VAT signed by the then Minister for Finance, Alan Jukes TD, who identified the valuable life-saving service that these rescue boats provided to mariners on an entirely voluntary basis. The statutory instrument allowed the CRBIs to reclaim their VAT on the operation and running costs of these rescue boats. The CRBI station and rescue boats are inspected by volunteers from Water Safety Ireland and provided they meet the required standards are passed and can then reclaim their VAT from the Revenue Commissioners. In 2013, the statutory instrument was amended to include inland waterways such as rivers and lakes, as 62% of all drowning mortalities occur there. There are now 15 CRBI stations operating around our coastline. Over the years, stations like Kilkee decided to move to the Ornelay or Coast Guard as they found the funding in remote areas difficult to maintain. Let us hope that the current search and rescue plan will serve the needs of all our mariners and ensure that our nation continues to be serviced well by well-trained and experienced lifeboat service without loss of life to our volunteers who save us. So until next month, enjoy your aquatic activities and always wear a life jacket on or near the water and use your influence to further reduce the number of drownings on our island nation. The appearance of humpback whales off the coast of West Kerry has been a regular occurrence for some time now and they're normally spotted near the 100-metre depth contour that lies close to West Kerry but runs further offshore along the Cork coast. And that's where we travel to, to hear from Dr Simon Barrow of the Irish Whale and Dolphin Group, who's currently part of a multidisciplinary survey crisscrossing the contour line from Cork to Galway that appears to attract top marine predators. I'm talking to you from Celtic Voyager, the uh, marine institute research vessel, and we're currently on a track line just to the south of West Cork. I can see the Fastnet light, and we're working away over the next eight days from Cork to Galway City. And our objective on this crew is to, is to focus on the 100-metre contour 
and look at it at its importance for top predators. So things like whales and dolphins, seabirds, uh, basking sharks, and other charismatic marine megafauna. The idea is to evaluate the importance of this feature, the 100-meter contour for marine species. What do you believe to be the importance of the 100-meter contour, Simon? Well, over the last 20 years, we've been doing a lot of work on humpback whales, and it's become apparent, especially off places like West Kerry, which are actually quite close to the 100-meter contour, that most sightings lie along this feature. And we've been wondering, is this the real effect of this feature on what would attract humpback whales, which, of course, is their prey. They're here to feed. So we've been looking at other sightings and find that um, some of the vessels off West Cork also have to go maybe 10, 15 miles off, which is near the 100-meter contour, before they find large whales, such as thin and humpback whales. Talking to colleagues in NUI Galway who are participating in this cruise in the, in the Department of Oceanography, they're saying that there is a well-known current that runs along the 100-meter contour, give or take, between, say, 60 to uh, 120 meters. And this is an important feature for fish, and it's known that fish spawn in this area because there's slightly higher productivity. So there is an actual real oceanographic driver that could be influencing the distribution of abundance of whales and dolphins. So it's putting those things together to try and um, concentrate and dedicate a survey to try and evaluate that. So we have on board uh, students from GMIT in Galway and NUI in Galway who are helping us doing the, um, the CTDs, which give us the ocean oceanography here and now in this place and time, and also uh, towing hydrophones. And we have a seabird team as well from GMIT who are uh, recording the seabirds. So in effect, we're looking at bottom, the bottom, the oceanography, the plankton, the seabirds, the uh, sharks, sunfish, uh, and then up into dolphins, whales, uh, humpback and fin whales. So we're trying to get a, a sweep of the entire marine oceanography through the predators uh, along this, um, this, this week's survey. So it's, it's kind of it's really nice, and it's exactly what the Celtic Voyager is all about, giving access to this brilliant research vessel to research groups in third levels and NGOs like the Irish Wind Dolphin Group to gain greater knowledge of marine biodiversity and the drivers behind it. And how would you look to apply that knowledge that you get from this survey, Simon? Well, what's, I mean, it's probably one of the best good news stories in Ireland in terms of marine conservation is the increase uh, in abundance of humpback and fin whales in Irish coastal waters over the last, say, 20 years since we've been recording them. Uh, and this is supporting a really important um, uh, tourism industry, which is small but growing fast and spreading. And the humpbacks and fin whales, certainly the humpbacks seem to be spreading up the West Coast as well. Now, is that because we've got more people looking or is it that because the whales are spreading as well? So we need to make sure that we understand what they're doing here, what features they uh, are here to exploit, and what are the driving drivers behind that. So they're here to feed. What are they feeding on? Well, we think they're feeding on uh, uh, pelagic fish such as young, young herring, uh, young uh, sprat, sand eels maybe in the early summer. But we don't know that for sure. So it's only by understanding what their feeding ecology is, identifying important areas, and then bringing in um, measures to ensure that those fish stocks are well-managed and well-maintained, which actually doesn't bring us into conflict with coastal communities and fishing industry, but actually brings us a synergy that that's what they would like to achieve as well. Because, you know, certainly herring has gone through another crash recently, which is a disaster for the, uh, the Celtic Sea. And sprat, as we know, is a really, really important forage fish for a whole range of species, including commercial fish species. So it's in all our interest to manage these fish stocks properly. And management requires knowledge, and hopefully we can bring some knowledge to the table 
regarding uh, the, uh, the role of predators and their requirements. Dr Simon Barrow speaking from the RV Celtic Explorer as it surveys the 100-metre contour line from Cork to Galway. And you can follow the survey online at scientistsatsea.blogspot.com. The importance of Ireland for the world's seabirds and their importance to the maritime environment here has been highlighted on the programme by Birdwatch Ireland, which works for the conservation and protection of wild birds and their habitats. Now there's been a major breakthrough. For the first time on record, Arctic terns have successfully raised chicks on Dolky Island on the South Dublin coastline. Arctic terns are also called sea swallows and are the world's greatest long-distance travellers. Tara Adcock, Birdwatch Island's Dolky Warden, reports. For the first time on record, this year Arctic terns have successfully raised chicks on the main island of Dolky, South County Dublin, giving the vulnerable colony which is protected by Birdwatch Ireland a much-needed lift. So far, six chicks have taken to the wing from the island, with the seventh expected to take its first flight over the next few days. This is a much-needed triumph, as although Arctic terns have in the past successfully reared young on both Maiden Rock and Lamb Island, which are also part of the Dalky Island archipelago, prior to this year, chicks have never survived to fledging on Dalky Island itself. This is most likely due to the effect of predators and, combined with unseasonal weather regularly flooding the other two islands in the archipelago, there were great concerns for the future of this dwindling Arctic tern colony. On top of the success of Dalky Island, Lamb Island has also confirmed six fledglings with the true figure is thought to be higher. A further nine chicks are currently waiting in the wings. The Arctic tern, nicknamed Sea Swallow, after its long tail streamers and buoyant flight, is the world's greatest long-distance traveller, migrating further than any other animal. During our summer months, they breed in Ireland and other parts of the Northern Hemisphere and then fly all the way to Antarctica, where they wait out the northern winter. This means that they see more daylight each year than any other creature on the planet. Throughout the course of their lives, they can travel more than 3 million kilometres, an especially impressive achievement for a bird that weighs just 100 grams. To put the overall distance which these birds travel into context, they migrate the equivalent of almost four round trips to the moon over the course of their lives, 25 to 30 years. Arctic terns are amber listed on the list of birds of conservation concern in Ireland, meaning that they are a particularly vulnerable species. One of the reasons for this is that the availability of suitable breeding habitat, namely undisturbed rat and mink-free offshore islands, is quite limited. To tackle this, Birdwatch Ireland carried out rat baiting across Doggy and Lamb Island before this year's nesting season. Canes were also erected across a portion of Lamb Island to exclude gulls from the tern colony. This work was carried out as part of the Dalky Turn Conservation Project, which is funded by the EU Life Rosia Turn Recovery Project and Dunleary Rathdown County Council. With continued management and funding, we hope to see this small but mighty turn colony flourish over the coming years, growing in capacity from its current level of 29 pairs. It is also hoped that eventually another species, the elegant Rosia Turn, one of Europe's most endangered seabirds, will also be persuaded to nest at Dalky. Europe's largest colony of rosia terns, holding approximately 50% of Europe's breeding population, is on Rockabilly, off the coast of North County Dublin, so the birds will not have far to travel. Rosia terns prefer to nest in colonies where other tern species are already established, so the presence of a thriving Arctic tern colony at Dalky could prove very attractive for them. By providing these birds with multiple nesting habitats, such as at Dalky, we can help to safeguard their future. Now, the latest angling news. Hello to all the anglers listening in. Miles Kelly from Inland Fisheries Ireland here again to give a quick roundup of the news from the world of fishing. In the pink is an old way of saying in good health. Unfortunately today it might become associated with something more negative for salmon anglers and Ireland's biodiversity. 
Pink salmon, also known as humpback salmon, are native to the river systems in northern Pacific Ocean, the Bering Sea and the Arctic Ocean. Basically, the west coast of Alaska and Canada and the very further eastern shores of Russia or Siberia down to Korea and out to Japan. So how did they end up over here? Well, the Russians started stocking pink salmon to the northwestern part of their country back in the 50s and they kept this up until 2001. These fish soon started to find their own way into more river systems in this part of the world, gradually spreading west until they were well established across the northwest of Russia and into Norway. We had our first pink salmon in an Irish river more than 40 years ago, back in 1973. But they were very rare in Irish waters until 2017. Pink salmon are a little unusual in that their life cycle is exactly two years. This means that in most places you only get them returning to rivers in odd years or even years. So if they were here in 2017, you'd be expecting to see them in 2019. And sure enough, towards the end of June, pink salmon once again returned to rivers in Ireland. So far, we know they are in the drows in Donegal. We don't yet know if there was any successful spawning in Irish rivers or if these are more pioneers spreading out from rivers in northwest of Norway. So, any anglers who catch pink salmon are asked to kill the fish and contact Inland Fisheries Ireland who will arrange collection for further study and research. If you are a salmon angler, please tag the fish and record the details in the usual manner. We will replace any tags used on pink salmon. Up until recently, there were never enough pink salmon in one place, here in Ireland at one time, to have any potential spawning, but in 2017, rivers across Norway, Scotland and Ireland saw big numbers of fish, and they were pairing up and exhibiting spawning behaviour. And like I said, they were here again in 2019. It would appear that Irish rivers are very much to the liking of pink salmon. The range of temperatures, water quality and food available make them very suitable for successful colonisation. What this means for our own native species, finned, furred and feathered, is not clear at this time, but invasive species are rarely beneficial. While pink salmon are swimming southwest to Ireland, Ireland's sole surviving ocean-going wooden sailing ship, the Island, continues her voyage northwest to Greenland, following the path of migrating salmon smolts, as they wind their way to the rich feeding grounds where they will complete the next stage in their life cycle. This adventure is called Salmon Wake, in a bid to draw attention to the plight of Atlantic salmon in Ireland. We wish the island and all who sail on her fair winds and following seas for all her three-week voyage to Greenland. This time of year is a favourite of many anglers. Long warm days followed by warm evenings. Tench anglers and those after Big Bream love these long lazy days as they mean great fishing all through the evening and into the early morning. The dusk and dawn are the best bets for trout anglers too and unless water levels improve, salmon anglers are often best advised to limit their fishing to these most productive times. Sea anglers are less affected by this issue as they frequently fish in deeper water where the fish are less concerned about rising water temperatures and the glare of the sun. But having said that, bass anglers and those on the shore are known to stalk the coast at the golden hour too. Well, that's all from me this week. Safe fishing to all and don't forget, CPR saves fish. Miles Kelly ending this edition of This Island Nation, produced at CRY 104FM Yall on the East Cork coastline and broadcast on community radio stations around Ireland. In Dublin on Near FM, Dublin City FM, Liffey Sound and Dublin South, on Dundalk FM, Athlone Community Radio, in Galway on Connemara Community Radio and Kinvara FM, Clare on Radio Corkabashkeen, in Kilkenny on Kilkenny City Community Radio. In Limerick on West Limerick 102, in Mayo on Community Radio Castle Bar, on Cork City Community Radio, West Cork FM, and Community Radio Bear Island. 
with podcasts on iTunes, Mixcloud, Soundcloud, Spotify, and the marinetimes.ie. Wherever you've been listening, thank you for being part of the maritime community on Community Radio. You can contact the program by email to thisislandnation at gmail.com or by phone or text to 0872-555-197. That's email thisislandnation at gmail.com, phone or text 0872-555-197. And there's the weekly blog on Facebook. Until our next program, from me, Justin Ma, the usual wish, a fair sailing. <laughs>